Statistics and statistical analysis are everywhere now. If you've been following this election cycle, odds are you're doing it in part through a website like the New York Times Upshot or Nate Silver's 538, which focus on data journalism. But statistical thinking really entered the mainstream of sports in the publication of the best-selling baseball book Moneyball back in 2003. That was a long time ago now. In fact, by now, you should probably be more familiar with advanced statistics, which have become commonplace in America's pastime. So take a break from the polls and consider box scores as we talk to Jacob Pomeranke of the Society for American Baseball Research. After that, we'd encourage you to think about the odds you could find a donor if you were to need a new kidney. Turns out they've gone up. We'll talk to a transplant surgeon about the latest in swapping body parts. Finally, we'll take a look at a strange phenomenon, Amazon.com's new brick and mortar stores, and we'll tell you if they're stupid or amazing. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. Cameron Johnson talked to Jacob Pomeranke of the Society for American Baseball Research, who told him about the advanced stats you should know this opening day. Everyone knows the word sabermetrics, but I feel like a lot of people don't know exactly what they are. Can you just give us a little definition? Sure. Well, sabermetrics, uh, you know, as it was kind of originally defined by uh, Bill James uh, back in the 1980s, is kind of the search for objective knowledge about baseball. Um, but it, you know, it's kind of evolved uh, over the you know, last 30 years to kind of, uh, it comes to mean any type of statistical analysis in baseball. And so, um, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to come from Sabre members. A lot of people think of Sabre metrics as only some of the new age statistics like wins above replacement or war. Um, but the Sabre metrics really is, is just kind of an all encompassing term um, for people who are interested in objectively studying the game. What are some of the different stats a casual fan could probably understand and should probably know at this point? You know, probably the most famous uh, sabermetric stat out there is called OPS. Um, and what that is is on-base percentage uh, plus slugging percentage. It is a, a mathematical addition. That's, that's all it is, um, on-base plus slugging. And OPS is kind of a very simple number uh, that gives you a little bit more understanding of hitters because it doesn't look at just batting average, you know, and hit, balls put in play, um, but it looks at a combination of your ability to get on base and not make outs and your slugging, your power. Um, so the, the more powerful you are, the, the more productive you are as a hitter. You know, there's actually uh, there's another one called wins above replacement. Uh, the acronym is WAR, um, and a lot of people would tell you what is it good for, but uh, it, it's actually uh, a pretty good way of of evaluating all aspects of the game: hitting, pitching, fielding, base running, you name it. Um, WAR kind of brings all of that together and gives you a, a number, spits out one number, and you can kind of evaluate from there um, all the, the value that a player provides um, in all aspects of the game. So you might have a player like Miguel Cabrera of the Detroit Tigers, who's a fantastic hitter, probably the best hitter in the game, but he's not that good of a fielder. He's a below-average base runner. And so there are players who are considered to be more valuable than him um, because of their overall contributions. Those are some simpler ones to understand. What about What if our listeners want to really impress their friends with uh, an esoteric, really out there stat. Are there, are there any ones that you think are really just so complicated that they could use that and throw it around and probably not understand it themselves, but really show off that they'd have this baseball knowledge? <laughs> I, I would say one of the more interesting ones is called FIP. 
FIP, fielding independent pitching, um, and that's calculated by Fangraphs.com. And that uh, what that does is that takes away the defense, um, and it evaluates pitchers as a pitching stat, and it takes away the performance of the defense. So if you're a ground ball pitcher and you have a great infield behind you, well, your other numbers are going to look spectacular because you've got this great defense mm-hmm. behind you. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're pitching all that well. And so what fielding independent pitching does is it takes away that defense. And so it looks more at what the pitcher did specifically rather than the results, uh, which rely on the defense, which relies on your home ballpark. And so what uh, FIP does is it takes away all these other factors, these outside factors that can't be controlled. Um, And it just looks at a pitcher's performance. Are there statistics now and statistical analysis that have come along because of the advent of new technology that we couldn't have even measured 20, 30, 40 years ago? There's a technology called StatCast that MLB has uh, developed over the last few years. And uh, last season in 2015 was the first season that it was implemented. StatCast was implemented in all 30 major league ballparks. It's a camera system and it tracks everything that happens on the field uh, every player their their starting position you know when they're uh, defending uh, you know tracks velocity of the batter running to first base the outfielders running for a fly ball it tracks spin rate for curveballs that are thrown by the pitcher we can track them in RPMs, um, and we can track literally everything that happens uh, in the game we're actually uh, I think there's a, almost a one terabyte per game um, that's being measured uh, in Major League Baseball this season, which is more than the data that was collected for all Major League games from 1901 up until about 2010, wow. um, which is incredible. And that's for one game uh, in 2015. Once we have a few years of this data, um, that's going to allow us to measure things that we've never even come close to measuring before. So, you know, we'll know which outfielders take the best route to the ball. Um, and who's the fastest base runner by, you know, velocity, by foot speed. Um, you know, we, know, we already know who has the best spin rates on their curveballs and, you know, things like that. Maybe this data will show that uh, a left-handed catcher actually can exist in Major League Baseball. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I, I think teams will be very open to the possibility. And, you know, if it gets measured, it's a lot, you know, uh, teams have a little bit of cover to say, well, you know, this, uh, this might actually work. So I'm joined now by Dr. Amy Friedman, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Live On New York, which is an organ procurement organization. And Amy, I'm definitely going to ask you to explain that in a second. But I um, want to mention also that you're a transplant surgeon trained uh, of, to do liver, kidney, and pancreas transplants, right? You've got it. That's right. So this, this past week was kind of a big week for transplants. There was news about a new technique for kidney transplants, and there's also some news about uh, the first uterine transplant in the U.S. Right. So I want to ask you about that, but first, what, what is an organ procurement organization? So we are a not-for-profit organization, federally designated. There are 58 throughout the country. So the country is divided into these 58 areas, and we are responsible for organ and tissue donation within our one area, which includes the greater metropolitan New York area. Once you receive a transplant as the person who has this new organ, in terms of care after the surgery, assuming it's successful, what's involved there? Most, uh, most transplants are 
big surgical procedures. So the standard kind of care that mm -hmm. is always given for surgical patients. In addition, patients have to be given medications to suppress their immune system so that they don't reject the organ that comes from a different human being because our immune system can recognize that there is difference. Okay, so as far as the this news about the kidney transplant, it's about that suppression as I understand it. So can you explain a little more when you say like our, our immune system recognizes the difference, what does that mean exactly? Fundamentally, there are two aspects to the immune response to something foreign that invades our bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's what an organ is, it's a foreign invader. There is a response called cellular, where we actually have white blood cells attack and physically destroy the organ. And we also have antibodies, which are little chemicals, not so little, but in the scheme of things, little, that circulate in the liquid portion of our blood and can pre-exist there and can also attack and destroy the organ in a different way than the cellular response. So this new technique is called desensitization, and it's appropriate for use in people who have high levels of antibodies circulating in the liquid part of their blood okay. that are targeting other human beings. Because those antibodies make it virtually impossible to find a match of, of an organ for that individual because they have so many antibodies, the antibodies recognize almost every human being. What this process does is actually lowers the amount of antibodies that they have circulating by doing what we call plasmapheresis, actually removing the liquid portion of the blood. And it, the blood circulates through a machine, the liquid portion is removed, and a liquid is, placed in re, is used in replacement. So that's one part, removing the antibodies. Second is replacing a general type of antibody so that people aren't su subject to all kinds of infections. Yeah. And then third, if they start to mount an antibody response following the transplant, they're given a newer kind of immunosuppressant agent that stops their cells from making antibodies. So we're lowering the amount of antibodies and when or, or if they create an antibody response, nonetheless, we target the antibody-making cells by giving a specific drug. Okay, so let me under see if I understand this. So every person, so I have some amount of antibodies. Lots of them, and that's why you're not sick. Okay, but it sounded like what you were saying is that some people have higher amounts where they're going to kind of target any potential donor organ. Well, that's right. What's unusual for these people is that they have antibodies targeting human beings. Okay. And there are three ways you get those antibodies. One, through pregnancy, because some of the mother and uh, baby's blood mixes. So the, mother is, the mother's immune response is exposed to the, the stuff from the baby, mm -hmm. and you make antibodies to a person. Yeah. The other way is to get blood transfusions because you're receiving human cells and you can make antibodies to them. Okay. And the third way is through a prior transplant because you've received a human's organ and you make antibodies to that. So this proportion, this small proportion of people who are on the waiting list and have high levels of antibodies or what we call sensitized have gotten it by being uh, having a sensitizing event like pregnancy, blood transfusion or a prior transplant. 
Wow. Okay. And so then the way this is treated is you are you actually take out the antibodies the person has, and then you make it harder for your body to make new ones that can attack the organ. Exactly. Wow. So that sounds really hard. It's not easy. It's also expensive. It costs about $30,000 per person. It's also, um, from a practical point of view, complicated to do. This is all controllable because of the live donor kidney circumstance. But people who don't have a living donor are still stuck at the top of the waiting lists, and they're at the top because they've been there for so long because we can't find a compatible donor for them. This was actually from a like a research study. Is why this was in the news. Is it something that's going to go? That's going to be used like immediately? Um, what's the outlook for this technique? So this has been used for quite a number of years um, successfully within research protocols. Mm-hmm. What this new study was was reporting a very large experience with thousands of patients and looking at the long-term outcomes. So I think the important point about that is because we have now a good large experience, uh, it probably moves this from a research approach into what we call standard of care. So oh, that's great. Exactly. Um, do you have a sense of, I mean, like what's the number of people who are going to be affected by this change if, as it becomes standard of care? Okay, so the general uh, scale of need for organs in the country right now is we have 121,000 people waiting. For all organs or just for all all organs? organs. 90% of them are waiting for kidneys because kidney disease is so common um, and we can keep people alive while they're waiting for transplants by having them with dialysis. Now, yeah. that's, that's not really the truth with the same with uh, a liver, for example. Right. People who don't get a liver transplant die. So we can't keep them alive waiting for a transplant to happen. Um, so of the 90% of people on the waiting list, about 20% have significant amount of antibodies, so one in five. Probably about uh, 5% are the ones that w- for which this, this strategy would be most applicable. Yeah. So that's a, that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And it's people that have been really stuck waiting for many, many years on dialysis because we couldn't find a compatible donor for them. And I think it's important for the audience to understand that dialysis is far from a perfect therapy. It's, yeah, it seems like it's extremely draining and it's draining it's tough on the body and actually there's a 10 percent risk of dying for every patient every year on dialysis so it's not okay that they have to wait um indefinitely uh for a transplant and it's really why we need people to become organ donors after you undergo this process what's the best way to do that you can always go through the department of motor vehicles and the other thing that i would add is that it's incredibly important to share your wishes with your family because they will need to know and they will need to share medical information about you with us and it's we need them to be on board as well This is Jackie Detweiler from the Most Useful Podcast Ever and a special Flintstones Meet the Jetsons episode of Stupid or Amazing. I'm here with Herbert Kleinberger, who is an adjunct professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and a former partner in charge of retail consulting practice for PricewaterhouseCooper. And I also have Matt Goulet, who is a senior associate editor here at the magazine. They're both here today to play Stupid or Amazing about Amazon's new brick and mortar retailers. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So it seems kind of like why you know like they went in and they put all of the brick and mortar 
bookstores out of business, which made everyone mad. So that, kind of. that seems odd to you. That... Why would they then go do it? It's like they, they obviated this category yeah. and then filled it, and then now they're trying to make wait, it a category. Like, wait, why wait a minute. Do I want to do it now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, no, Amazon, uh, obviously, getting into retail, physical brick-and-mortar retail, has been uh, a subject of pundits for a lot of years. A lot of people have been speculating about it, actually. And... Uh, you know, the, the, the inevitability of it, I think, was always there. And why? Because um, I think everybody who sells products to consumers understands at the end of the day that there's nothing quite like the physical interaction that takes place person to person in a brick and mortar store where you can actually experience the brand and interact in a way that you can't uh, online. And if you want to experience a brand, and if you have a brand that you want to expand uh, that's a consumer-oriented brand, there's, there's, there's no way better to do it than in a physical store. Well, that was one of the thoughts that I think I'd read about coming across with the Amazon stores, was that with their items like, you know, the new Alexa uh, kind of speaker thing that you put in your house, and the, even the Kindle, that, you know, consumers might be a little wary of buying something like that online initially if, without even having tried it physically or how it works. And so that the brick and mortars are almost just less of bookstore and more more showrooms. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of the a lot of the retailers who started online um, and where where business models were designed around online only are evolving into broader brick and mortar formats and realize that they've got to do it. You've seen it with Bonobus. See it with Warby Parker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and Amazon in some ways is late to the game. They started as uh, the biggest uh, bookstore in the world online, right? But then they clearly took every other product category known to man and, and, and went uh, full bore with it as well. And, and, you know, retail, physical brick and mortar retail now gives them the opportunity to leverage what they've learned about customers over all these years into a new type of retailing. I, I, I don't think it's going to be ultimately the same kind of store experience that you had or have really in a traditional bookstore or in any other kind of store that they ultimately get into. And by the way, I do think this is just the beginning for them. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would expect uh, other types of product categories to be in their sites for physical brick and mortar down the line. So we're going to get Walmart-style Amazon stores? Or? I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure. You'll have like a giant department store called Amazon with lots of little <laughs> categories in it. I, I'm, a, I'm imagining initially more specialty stores. Mm -hmm. You know, the store, this bookstore is like 6,000 6, square feet. You know, it's, it's a relatively small store. So my question about Amazon is it seems to me like this, like it's become this kind of giant faceless sort of, it doesn't have in my experience a personality the way like Bonobos or Warby Parker does. And so when I imagine it having a retail location, I understand, okay, like, you know, you could return things there and that would be awesome. Or you could test out the Alexa and that would be awesome. But if I imagine an Amazon store, I'm imagining kind of, a warehouse, you know, and are they going to try to give themselves a personality? Is that kind of what this is? Or do you think it matters? No, I think it definitely matters because right now it is a bit of a, a faceless empire mm -hmm. that uh, is mostly about operational excellence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, doing things quick, searching quick, being mm -hmm. efficient about delivery, being efficient about pricing, quick about checkout, you know, the very operationally excellent. But you don't think about Amazon as being um, highly curated, special. So 
giving them a personality is really important, and I think that's part of what they're doing as they've expanded into apparel too. You know, they, they're now a big fashion player. A lot of mm -hmm. people, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're not going out there to buy your outfit yet, but you will soon. Right. They bought Zappos, so they do a big shoe business already. Right. That could be the next H&M, too. Right. And so pricing's another thing that's really interesting when you, when you think about what they do. So their pricing model online is very dynamic. On a lot of products, they change their prices very frequently, even within the course of a day sometimes. So when you go to the store, nothing actually has a price tag yet, right? It's all priced by picking up the item and scanning it and then you can check the price so that they are dynamically able to modify those prices that's kind of amazing that's cool. that kind of cool mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. so that's way different than yeah. a lot of brick and mortar retailers that you know today right yeah. yeah and they've customized the assortment so look they know based on their customer database who's been buying what type of books in every geography that they sell to right mm -hmm. and so they've been able to say all right in this particular market in outside of seattle uh, where we're opening this store, we know what people there are like we, from our database, right? Mm -hmm. So they can really micro-merchandise the assortment of that store. That's what's really exciting about retail right now is, you know, the convergence of online and, and brick and mortar is giving us the opportunity to do so much innovation mm -hmm. in the way we experience retail, the way we deliver products. You know, it's not just, you know, walking up aisles anymore and looking for stuff and not finding somebody who's helpful or... In mm -hmm. fact, the opposite, finding somebody who's just not very helpful, informative, and who, who therefore isn't there to make it fun and, and informative, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, if there's anything, this is maybe completely different, but I've definitely, I've been uh, using Stitch Fix, which is like one of those, um, it's like a personalized clothing retailer where like you put in your preferences, you can put in your Pinterest page, you can put all these things, and they'll send you clothes that you could, you then right. choose, Trunk and then you can send them back, right. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is kind of exciting, mm -hmm. this like personalization. Look, let's face it, if, if you're going to have to get out of your seat and, and get in your car and drive somewhere and take time out of your day and go to a physical store to buy something that you could otherwise sit at your desk and push a button to get, there's got to be a reason for you to want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So th that's where everybody's really trying to crack the code right now. You know, what is it that will make that worthwhile? I think the answer is free samples. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> free stuff. So that's not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, I think it's amazing. I think, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. And I don't like shopping online that much, so I'd much rather go to an Amazon store. All right. Amazing. I like to go to stores, too. Yeah. I, I like the interaction with the people um, and the social aspect of it. Yeah. So you would say amazing. I, I do. I, I think it's a great, um, it, it's long overdue, but yeah. this time will tell. It'll take a little while. At the risk of an Amazon deep learning computer sending a drone to my house and murdering my entire family, I'm going to be a curmudgeon and say stupid. I don't know. I don't want another Walmart. We already have one, don't we? You know. Oh, so Walmart. Walmart's huge. Walmart. Yeah. Walmart's five times the size of yeah. Amazon. Still. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna say I'm saying it's stupid. You don't want That's a cold bookstore. You want a. I don't warm, want a. I want a cozy. warm. I want a warm, cozy bookstore with recommendations from people who can't be employed elsewhere. <laughs> they, don't even, they don't even sell coffee in this one yet. See, this is what I'm saying. No coffee. <laughs> no coffee. It's stupid. That's that's that's, that's fair. Very fair. <laughs> So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply, as well as Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. 
please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment to know what you think. In the meantime, check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. While you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of our magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening. There's a gum that I used to love you, baby. I've said my mind and